It's 10 minutes after 8 o'clock in the central time zone of East Dakota. And uh, joining us now from Columbia, Maryland, Doug Greenwald. Doug is the Senior Teaching Fellow and Executive Director of Preserving Bible Times. Doug, happy Wednesday. How are you doing out there? Well, thank you. We were uh, pushing 90 degrees yesterday. Oh, pushing 90. Whoa. Whoa, ho, ho. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we took the grandkids and went down to Inner Harbor in Baltimore and get on the shuttle boat and yeah. went out to uh, where Francis Scott Key wrote the Star Spangled Banner. Fort McHenry still out there? Fort McHenry, yeah. yep. It was a, a beautiful day. Mm, that sounds so we nice. did a little history yesterday. All right. Uh. Well, Doug, we're looking for a trip back some 2,000 years to Jerusalem during this week. Uh, last week, we talked about some of the highs, at least as some people see, you know, Palm Sunday, a, a curious mix of celebration and and threat, wasn't it? Yes, and the combination of the two is creates a tinderbox. Hmm. Jerusalem is on the verge of exploding with expectancy, revolutionary spirit, overthrow is in the air. Uh, but there are two groups of people who are vitally concerned, obviously the Romans, mm-hmm. but the Jewish leadership of the temple as well. Mm-hmm. Because the temple in the first century might as well have been known as Temple Incorporated. It was the Wall Street of its day. It was the Walmart of its day. The Sanhedrin and the Sadducean elites, who uh, are the small number of families, the Sadducean families who control the temple, who were on the board of directors, so to speak. And and this was their big week of the year, too, with, with Passover. So the city was crowded, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, Two of their businesses will do land office business this week. Um, One is currency exchange. And um, these sly folk who comprise the board of directors of Temple Incorporated have figured out that the Tyrian half shekel, the one made up around Tyre, has the most silver content in it compared to all the other half shekels that are minted in the Eastern Mediterranean basin. And so they have standardized on that one as the only half shekel that can be used to pay the temple tax. Mm -hmm. And so people who bring in all their own half shekels from different parts of, call it the diaspora, now need to exchange at usurious rates to get the right kind of half shekel. And to synopsize this all down, they're running a silver skimming operation in the temple. (laughs) And also, if you happen to have brought your own favorite Paschal lamb, say from Damascus, and carried it all this way to be sacrificed, it has to be inspected first by the temple animal inspectors to see if it's blemish-free. And guess what? Mm-mm. Nine out of ten times, they find a blemish. Sorry, that one just doesn't make the grade. Exactly. So now you have to buy a blemish-free Paschal lamb from a temple flock. Mm-hmm. By the way, those are the flocks that were in the Bethlehem fields the night that Jesus was born, giving rise to Paschal lambs. And so they're making a killing financially. And everybody knows this is a, a con game. Uh, That's just the way it is. While the ordinary priests, like the 20,000 Zacharias who run the infrastructure of the temple, are really good guys, these guys at the top don't have a spiritual bone in their body. And um, so that's part of what's going on here. And the moment that Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, as we talked about last week, on the fourth day, 
it's certified to everyone that he is indeed the bona fide Messiah. I wanted to ask you about that. Did it certify it as well to the Pharisees and, and, and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin so that they, they knew in their hearts that this was the Messiah or were they still fooling themselves about uh, who's really in charge here? Well, you know, when we use the word Pharisees in this particular context, it means the Jerusalem Pharisees, mm-hmm. particularly those who are um, collaborating or with the Sanhedrin, or some of them are even on the Sanhedrin. There are many Pharisees in the north, in the Galilean district, who probably have long ago embraced Jesus as Messiah. Well, Jesus, so Jesus a was lot one of, of them, wasn't he? Wasn't Jesus thought of as a, a northern Pharisee? Oh, absolutely. Any rabbi was also a Pharisee. Mm-hmm. It's just a given. And so, um, you know, that's why Simon invites Jesus in after one Shabbat service, because he sees him as a fraternity brother. Mm-hmm. Pharisees always looked out for other Pharisees. It is, it is functioning almost like a fraternity. And anyway, Jesus would have been seen as a Pharisee. You couldn't have been a rabbi without being seen that way. And so when he brings... Lazarus back to life, it's like the Goodyear blimp flying over Jerusalem, flashing big letters, Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is Messiah. Now, you have to factor in here the worldview of Judaism that the rabbis have promulgated in the first century, and that when Messiah comes, he will go straight to the temple and reign. He will set up his throne and reign politically and militarily, and three outcomes will come from that. There will be peace, finally, social justice, and prosperity, okay? So, if Jesus goes to the temple as Messiah and sets up his reign there, as their worldview says he will do, their gig is over running the temple. This phenomenal cash flow generating machine is over. So the last thing that they can allow to happen is for Jesus, even if he is the real Messiah, to do that. And that's why at the end of John 11, they come to the conclusion, we need to kill him. There's not a spiritual bone in this leadership body, okay? And so that's part of the backdrop that's going on with Temple Incorporated. Now, Caiaphas, who's the chief priest that particular year, has a problem. He can't let Jesus do that. So the issue with the Jewish leadership is Jesus claims to be Messiah. We're going to refuse to acknowledge that he is, and therefore we can accuse him of blasphemy, punishable by death, stoning. But Caiaphas's problem is Rome could care less about someone claiming to be a god because they're into polytheism. The more gods, the merrier. And they know if they go to Pilate and say, we want him killed because he claims to be um, God's Messiah, Pilate's going to shrug his shoulders and say, that's not an issue to Rome. Get out of here. So they have to change their tactic so I want you to freeze that thought for a moment because I got to go up another cul-de-sac before I come back out and get back to the main road. Mm-hmm. Six months earlier, a perceived overthrow in Rome was quenched by Tiberius and he had Sejanus killed. Now, if we go back further in Roman Empire history here, 
Tiberius took over after Caesar Augustus died. He was a relative, a nephew. And he was about 57 years old when he came to the throne. And he had no interest in governing. So he would often retreat away from Rome. Um, He had a seaside villa in the Naples Bay region. And one time when he was down there, there was a minor earthquake. And one of the tall Roman statuaries who surrounded his dining area toppled over and started to fall. And a Roman soldier named Sejanus threw his body between Tiberius and this falling uh, statue. And supposedly Tiberius felt saved his life. From there on, Sejanus grew in power over the next several years to the point where he basically was de facto running the Roman Empire. Now, Tiberius was an older man, wasn't he? Sorry? He, Tiberius was an older man, wasn't he? He wasn't... He was uh, 57 when he ascended the throne. Which yeah. was old, yeah. So he retreated over the coming years to his mansion, his villa, on the top of the island of Capri, Uh, which I've been to and walked around and uh, did a lot of nefarious things up there. Meanwhile, Sejanus was administrating, running, ruling the kingdom, gathering more and more power. And finally, he felt it was time to take over the Roman Praetorian Guard, the elite of the elite of the Roman Legion, who's based in Rome, who guards Rome and the emperor. And Tiberius' sister got wind of that, or felt that she did, and sent Tiberius a note informing him that Sejanus was about to do a coup d'etat, in her opinion. And Tiberius laid a trap for Sejanus and had him executed. Now, the reason this is significant is because Sejanus appointed Pontius Pilate to be the prefect, the -hmm. governor of Judea. Mm -hmm. Okay? So, Sejanus is a known anti-Semite. So, as long as Sejanus is in power, Pilate has no issue being an anti-Semite because it reflects his boss. But now, six months before, Sejanus is suddenly gone, and Tiberius is now the new boss of Pilate, and Pilate doesn't know where he stands with respect to anti-Semitism, although it turns out he was one, okay? Pilate's got a brand new boss, and he's now walking on eggshells to make sure nothing gets wrong. He does nothing wrong. No reports get back to Tiberius that would question his competency. Part of the background of Pilate at this point in time is he has a very checkered career. He's really made some significant mess-ups in his past, and we should consider him to be on probation right now when it comes to Rome. Another piece of information we have to factor into this is that Rome sees Israel as a buffer zone, a geographical piece of real estate that separates the Roman Empire from the Parthians, which we would know as the Persians. And the Persians are the only people group who have ever defeated a Roman legion. So the Parthians are the only ones that Rome really is concerned about. And the role of Israel is to be a buffer state between the Parthians and the Roman Empire, and therefore, you got to keep a lid on this buffer state. You can't let anything happen here and upset the apple cart. 
So those are some things that you have to factor into pilot's calculus now as this chess match continues to unfold during Passion Week. So once six months prior that Tiberius reasserted his power and executed Sejanus, an edict was sent out all throughout the Roman Empire. Do not tolerate sedition. The moment you get a whiff of it, stamp it out, kill it, execute it. It cannot be tolerated. And the Jewish leadership knows this. And so they say, well, blasphemy isn't ever going to get Jesus killed. Pilate could care less. Let's switch our accusation to sedition. That will get him killed. So that's indeed what they do. And that's the charge that they now bring to Pilate, okay? And so now Pilate is forced to deal with this issue of sedition. He can't duck it. And so we have this back and forth that we see in the Gospels about how Pilate is trying to manage the situation. He, he thinks he can shift it to Herod Antipas, who's in town for Passover, staying at the Hasmonean Palace. And so he sends Jesus to Antipas because Jesus is in the Galilee district. That's the jurisdiction that Antipas has. But Antipas is smart and shrewd enough to know I'm not touching this one with a 10-foot pole. And he sends Jesus back to Pilate. Stop right there. That makes yep. That's an aha moment. Knowing, understanding why, what, what Pilate's reasoning was in sending him to Herod. I mean, for me, that's always been a big question mark. I mean, they weren't in Galilee. Herod was kind of vacationing up there, wasn't he? No, Herod Antipas um, had, was based in Tiberias, well, which is in the well, southwest ba- Based there, but, but physically, where, where was he during that week? Was he not in Jerusalem? Herod Antipas? Yes. Yes, he's, he's staying in the Hasmonean okay, Palace. But, so, but, but, but his, his home district is in Galilee, and Jesus was from there. And exactly. so Pilate is, is tying that together and saying, Herod should take care of this. That's one exactly. of his. Yeah. This comes out of your neighborhood. You deal with it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I have a question as well. The, why, why did Pilate have, uh, I mean, if he felt that his, uh, his, oh, maybe not exactly orders, but at least the feeling of orders were coming from Rome. That's you find sedition, you stamp it out. Why was he kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, not really specific and forceful, and saying, "Okay, I'm going to do this." Instead, he does the tap dance and sends him to to Antipas. Was was Pilate, you know, uh, serving another master? Was uh, was he kind of playing both sides against the middle somewhere? No. Pilate is trying to deal with his own self-preservation. You have to tie in uh, what I said 10 or minutes or so, well, actually last week. Pilate knows that Palm Sunday took place. Mm-hmm. He knows that the 200,000 pilgrims in Jerusalem love Jesus. And so even though he's got the pressure from Rome to deal with sedition, if he executes Jesus, he could have a riot on his hands, and there goes his career, and there goes the buffer state. It's now volatile. It's now out of control. I mean, you have to appreciate the different pressures that are coming at Pilate here, and he's trying to manage these pressures. And like a chess game, he's trying to maneuver himself in such a way that he can satisfy the Jewish establishment so they won't send a party to Rome to complain, that the masses won't revolt, okay? Okay. 
Okay. Then the rocks cry out, and in you know, the exactly rest of the, that yeah. whole phrase, the rocks cry out, is code for riot. Okay. Mm-hmm. When rocks are thrown in Israel, they are always thrown in protest. That still is true today. And so that's what Jesus is saying. If I ask these people to be quiet, the rocks will cry out. There'll be a riot here. That's the last thing you you leadership really want to see right now. There's another aha moment. That explains something that's been a mystery to a lot of folks. They think, well, something supernatural? The rocks will make noise? No. No. (laughs) You will have a rebellion on your hands if, if, if you rechannel their energy somehow. Yeah, you got 200,000 people here, mm-hmm. you know, ready to revolt if, if this tinderbox gets a spark. And you don't want to be the one that provides the spark. Mm-hmm. What's the population of, of Jerusalem at the time? Well, not during major festivals. It's estimated about 25,000. Wow. But during major festivals, Josephus will say from 200,000 up to a quarter million people come. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's going to be a serious riot. Exactly. Wow. In, the Ro- in the Roman wow. 10th Le- Legion, the part of the Roman 10th Legion that's stationed at the Antonio Fortress, which abuts Temple Mount up in the northwest corner there, will not be adequate to deal with this. Not even close. Yeah. yeah. So, this is going on. This is what Pilate is dealing with, okay? This is what explains the back and forth and the jockeying. And finally, uh, we get to the end of John. We get to John 19. I'm going to pick up John 19:12. But from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. You see the threat there? Mm-hmm. We'll send a report to Rome that you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. There's their sedition claim, okay? When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known at the stone pavement. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. Now, let me stop right there. Anytime we see this phrase, the Jews, it means the Jewish leadership. The crusade started primarily because they, un- they did not know the context for this phrase, the Jews. They thought it meant the Jewish nation, all the Jewish people. And that's where anti-Semitism has come for a long, long time. But no, it means the Sanhedrin. It means the Sadducean families who are running Temple Incorporated. They're known contextually here as the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And here is the phrase that I'm getting to and have been trying to build up to for the last 15 minutes here. We have no king but Caesar. Mm -hmm. The chief priest answered. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. what Pilate Mm -hmm. is trying to extract. Okay? The concession that they will submit to Rome if he kills Jesus. We have no king but Caesar. Can you imagine the chief priest of Judaism saying, we have no king but Jesus, Caesar. There it is. There's a vacuum here. Hypocrisy exposed, empty. yeah. Hmm? Yeah, they're totally exposed. They, they don't have a religious bone in their body, let alone a spiritual one. They're as corrupt as the day is long. Okay, But the chess game is over. And in verse 16, finally, 
after all the jockeying and back and forth is over, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Okay. A little bit more of the contextual backdrop to Passion Week. Mm. Are they, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the name of the group uh, that lived in uh, in Israel somewhere who who were able to outmaneuver the uh, Roman legions. Um, Thinking it's the, the zealots, maybe. Uh, you know, no, it's, it's a it's a military group, and they they developed the uh, uh, the technique of shooting arrows oh, behind those are, them. Those are Parthians. As, those are the Parthians. Yeah, the Parthians. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. the Parthians. Parthian shot. Were were, th- were there in elements? Were they a part of it as well, or that was just a part of the background because the Parthians had been a, a number well, of years. They had that. invaded Jerusalem, but I don't know when. I think it was. I think it was after. Doug, do you know? Well, there also is an issue that when um, Herod the Great in around about 30, 40 BC, he had to deal with the Parthians to gain control over this country before he could be king of the Jews, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And there were some serious battles and some serious damage done by the Parthians. So the Parthians show up at different times in history here. But the, the historical backdrop for this particular uh, Passion Week scenario and, and contextual backdrop is the historical understanding that there are ruthless people and um, they're the only ones who defeated the, a Roman legion and therefore the rule of Israel is a buffer state and we got to keep a lid on this place no matter what. Now, so they're part of the backdrop but, but, yeah. but no, nothing active, okay. Now I got to insert one other thing in this scenario here. There's a lot of pieces moving in real time. Uh, I want to talk about Barabbas. First off, what a fascinating name. Usually, you have a first name. Simon Bar Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. That's Bar or Ben, depending on Aramaic or Hebrew. Okay, But he is simply known as Barabbas. So, let's split that apart. B-A-R, Abbas. Son of, what's Abbas? Father. Father. Fathers. Plural. Exactly. So what a fascinating name. He's known as Son of Fathers. And we don't know his first name. Is he so well known as a bandido and desperado that you don't need to mention his first name? But all we see here in the text is he's known as Barabbas. Now, I want to bring in a thought here from the theological world. When they talk about early Genesis... Adam is referred to as the federal man by a certain theological perspective. Federal means representative government. We even use that word, United States is a federal government, a representative government. And what that means is that Adam was the best possible person to represent us in the garden. He's the federal man. And when he fell, we all fell. It's a theological mm-hmm. uh, argument. I want to suggest to you that Barabbas is also a federal man of a different type. He is the best possible representative to represent you and I in Passion Week. Because he is mentioned in, in all four Gospels, he gets more ink than Judas Iscariot. 
when we put the Gospels together, we find out here he's a seditionist, he's a murderer, he's a thief. He's been brought to trial and he's received perfect justice. And he is on death row waiting to die. He is probably the most despicable person that uh, exists in that culture. And so, as part of this jockeying, as part of this chess game that I just previously alluded to is going on, Pilate's trying to keep control of all this and keep his hands clean for political reasons. In the midst of that, he says, oh, I got an idea. I got, an, I got a new idea. There is this tradition during Passover that the Roman prefect releases a prisoner. So, what I'm going to do is offer the people of choice this year from this perfect man, Jesus, and this despicable person, Barabbas. And Barabbas is so reviled, so despised, that there is no question that the crowds will say, give us Jesus, give us Jesus, and I'll crucify Barabbas. Because he's on death row anyway. He's going to die. So he hatches this plan. And here's a word of wisdom. If you're going to offer a deal to a crowd, you better understand your crowd. Because while all the hundreds of thousands of people are sleeping still, just after daybreak, there are two to three hundred hand-picked cronies of the Sanhedrin and the Jerusalem elite families who've been brought into the courtyard where Pilate is staying, and they've been coached to say, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas, not Jesus, okay? And so at this point, Herod loses, or um, Pilate loses control because he doesn't understand the crowd he's about to make this offer to. And the word crowd, by the way, semantically, when we get into what it means, it means a grouping of people. It doesn't speak to how large that grouping is. So there's sort of a little linguistic ring to this one as well. And so when he makes the offer, shall I crucify Barabbas and set Yeshua free or vice versa? They immediately are coached to holler out, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Meanwhile, in a pit, a prison pit in the basement of either the Herodian or, I'm sorry, not the Herodian, the Antonia Fortress or, or Herod's Palace where Pilate is now presumably staying. There's some ambiguity as to which site he's at here. Down in this dark pit, chained by his limbs, sitting on a wooden bench with rats nipping at his feet is Barabbas awaiting execution. He knows he's down to his last days. He knows he's going to die. He knows he's received perfect justice. He deserves to die. He's just on the countdown. And suddenly he hears the faint cry, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And he says, oh my goodness, are the crowds that worked up for my execution that they want it done now? I don't even have a couple days left. And then shortly thereafter, he hears, crucify him, crucify him. 
and not knowing the context of what was taking place in the courtyard of Herod's palace where Pilate is holding forth for Passion Week, he assumes it's about him when really it was about Jesus. And so then he hears the jailer's shuffle coming down over the stone walkway, getting louder and louder as it approaches his cell door, and then it stops, and then he hears the door open, the lock removed, and standing in the doorway is the jailer. And Barabbas says, I don't even have a couple hours left now. And the jailer says, Barabbas, you're free. And Barabbas is stunned. What, what do you mean free? You're free. Well, how, how can that be? Somebody took your place. What do you mean took my place? Yeah, somebody named Yeshua. He's a rabbi. He's going to take your place. I've even heard of him. They say he's the perfect man. Some thinks he's even the Messiah. What do you mean he's taken my place? I don't know. All I can tell you is you're free. Well, where are they taking them? To that place, Golgotha. And so Barabbas leaves this prison, leaves his pit, tries to join this surging throng as they too are heading towards Golgotha. Gets there a little bit late, but just in time to see the nails being driven into the hands of Jesus and realizes those should have been his hands. And then one comes through the ankles at 90 degrees and he realizes that it should have been his ankles that were receiving those nails. And then they raise the cross and drop it jarringly into the hole and it tears at some of Jesus' hands and ankles. The blood is starting to come out. And I don't know if that happened, but if it happened, what would that have done? to Barabbas. Here's the point. Let me push the rewind button here. The jailer comes, stands in the doorway, says, Barabbas, you're free. And Barabbas says, I'm not interested. I'm just going to stay right here. No, no, no. You don't understand. You're absolutely free to go. I don't want to be free. I want to be chained here in this darkness. I want the rats to continue to eat at my feet. You've You've got to be crazy, the jailer says. You know, every day people hear about the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came to set them free, and they make a decision to stay in their prisons. Barabbas, the federal person, the perfect person to represent you and I in Passion Week. And here's something to ponder. Barabbas is us. And so I really do think it's worthy during Passion Week to realize that he did. He took our place and Jesus came and set us free. And that should add to the glory, the wonder, the mystery of Passion Week. The son of every man. The son of every man. The son of all the fathers. Talking with Doug Greenwald of Preserving Bible Times. I want to recommend their website to you, preservingbibletimes.org. You can link there from Broken Road Radio if you're listening there this morning. 
and uh, pay a visit. You'll find the tremendous resources that provides for you the context of first century Israel and Italy, for that matter, too. You'll this will brighten your day with respect to Paul's writings as well. And uh, Doug, we're so grateful. Thank you for this. And I know it won't be Passion Week next week, but I'd love to continue because there's much more to be said about that week in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Well, let's do some of that. Let's do it. We'll see you then. Have a good week. Thanks, guys. Thank shalom, you. Shalom, shalom. Shalom, Doug. Shalom, Doug.